so we, like I said, we got about three weeks left in the sermon series going through the book of James called Where Faith Meets Life. Uh, if you haven't been here for it, basically what we were looking at is we're going through the book of James and we're looking at how our faith practically applies to all aspects of our life. And so how faith is not just one part of our life, how, okay, there's work, there's school, and then we'll have faith over here as part of it. No, how faith incorporates everything. It incorporates how we view work and school and our neighborhoods, how we interact with people, how we talk with people, how we handle our lives. And so tonight might seem a little different. A couple weeks ago, we looked at how we're not to boast about tomorrow because we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we can know who holds tomorrow. And that was for Christians. That was for Christians who were not taking into account God's will for their lives. So tonight is a little bit different in a sense where James is going to be specifically addressing rich people, more specifically rich unbelievers. And so that might seem kind of weird. What what can we learn from that? But there's a few things we'll realize through this passage that we can understand from that. But before we do that, I want to give an analogy and, and I, want to, I want to get a little feedback from y'all. So here is, uh, here's the thing. We're talking about how money matters, how money matters. And so what I want to ask the question is this. Um, I want to give you an option. Here's your two options. All right. Either I can give you a million dollars today, right now, up front, that's it, or I'll give you one penny starting today, and that will double every single day for 31 days, for a whole month. So where are you going to take the million dollars? I can either give you a million dollars right up front, or you can take the penny that'll double every day for a whole month. Oh, okay. I choose um, the penny because we had to do this for fifth grade math class. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, so Abby, wait, are you taking a million dollars or taking the penny? I would take the penny on two reasons. Okay. Uh, I would do the penny because if I got a thousand dollars, I would spend it because if I got it in one in one day, I would spend it faster than I would the penny. And then I would also want the penny because when it comes to VBS time, the girls don't beat the boys. <laughs> All right, what about, all right, is anybody, is anybody going to take the million dollars just right up front? Anybody want to give a reason why they just take the million dollars right up front? It's easier. It's easier. It's what? You put it in the bank? Okay. So let's do this. Here, let's rein it back in. Here, let's do this by show of hands. By show of hands, who would take the million dollars right up front right now? All right, who's, who's taking the pennies doubling a day for a whole month? All right, so here's the crazy part. For the people that chose the penny that doubles every single day for 31 days, you want to know how much you're going to get at the end? I don't know the exact number, but you're going to have over $10 million. I think it's, it's 5 million for 30 days. For 30 days. Yes, that's, that's why I said 31. Yeah, so like 30 days, for 30 days, you get $5 million. If you go 31 days, you get $10 million. Think about that. Think about that. Something so insignificant. Here, hold on. Here, let's gain it in. 
Something so insignificant at the time that you thought, there's no way. It's a penny. Why does it matter? But in the end, we realize in the end, the rewards are so much better than just taking something right in front of us as a million dollars. As lucrative, as encouraging, as enticing as that is, then we realize if we understand what the end goal is, it makes waiting for that so much better. And so what I want us to look at is I want us to look at tonight in this passage, this warning to the rich, how these rich are accumulating everything by worldly standards, how they're accumulating everything by worldly standards. But in the end, that is not going to matter. In the end, we are to look towards the end goal in mind. We are to have eternity at the end goal of our hearts and our motivations that any earthly possession we gain here pales in comparison to the heavenly rewards that wait us on the other side if we are to endure to the end and wait through that. But yes, there are some days where it goes, it's just a penny. It's just two cents. It's just 16 cents, whatever the case is. But when we go over, we see in the end, the rewards are so much better. Because the reason why maybe a lot of us chose that million dollars how so enticing it is, is because we, as fallen sinful human beings, we're prone to do what we desire. We're, we're prone to do what's best for us and gain as much as we can by the world's standards. But here's what I want us to understand. Here's the main point of what I want us to get out of this passage. The gospel commands us to lay down our life in this world in pursuit of the world to come. The gospel commands us to lay down our life in this world in pursuit of the world to come. Like I said, we are to have eternity as our end goal. We are to view Christ in heaven as better than the here and now. Now, what I'm saying is that doesn't mean we're not going to get blessed along the way. Just like how with suffering, it's not like, okay, once you die, then everything's better. Yes, there's suffering in this life, but there's also, there's also things for us to endure through suffering in this life. Just like, yes, there is blessings we can endure through this life. It might not be in worldly standards eyes, but there's still blessings we can endure too. Ultimately, in the end, we stand face to face with Christ and receive rewards that way if we are to endure to the end. Because again, the gospel commands us to lay down our life in this world in pursuit of the world to come. Like I said, James is writing to rich unbelievers at this time. That's who this passage is addressing in James 5, 1 through 6 that we're going to look at. So the thought is, okay, if, if James is writing to rich non-believers, what's, what are we supposed to get out as believers? And, and there's, it's really important what we get out of it because we are to look at what they are doing and basically do the exact opposite. There are things, that, there are truths we are to understand from this. There are commands that we are to rest in. In their truths, we are to understand about the here and now and the then and later. So basically, like I said, James is writing to non-believers who obtain their wealth by deceitful and immoral gains. And what is James is not James is not attacking believers who have been blessed with wealth. So when we go through this, I want us to be up front. This is not saying that if you gain any sort of wealth, that is just sinful. There are some people that God blesses with, with financial means, but it's ultimately what are we doing with those means to advance his kingdom and to spread the gospel? So we are to see three truths in the end of what matters. And underneath each truth of what we will see in the end are commands we are to observe and obey now. So before we get into that, I want to read our passage in James 5, 1 through 6. If you don't have your own physical Bibles. It is on the back side of your notes. 
that we're going to be looking at. And so here's James 5, 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who moved your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray real quick. Dear God, I pray as we just unpack your word, I pray that you help calm our minds and calm our hearts just to be able to hone in and understand truly what it is that this passage is saying. I pray that you will free us of any distractions from our phones, from school, from work, from family life or home life or personally, that you will just let us focus in over these next few minutes on your word. In the end, it'll convict us. It'll encourage us. It'll draw us to the cross of Christ where we can become more like your son, Jesus, and who he's called us to be. And ultimately, we become more like the family here that you have called us to be here at LSM. So I pray right now you will just hide me behind your word, behind your cross, and just let your word speak for itself. The Holy Spirit, whatever is your truth will be remained and what takes root and what is produced in the lives of all of us and what is just my opinion will be forgotten. So I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, there is three truths that we are to understand from this. And then underneath each truth will be a command that we should obey in the here and now. And the first truth is this is that earth or eternal, or sorry, it's supposed to say earthly pursuits, earthly pursuits leads to eternal condemnation. Earthly pursuits leads to eternal condemnation. And so right in the very first verse, James is saying, come now, you rich, weep and howl. He's saying, come now. That's the same come now that was said in James 4, 13 through 17, where he's like, come now, you who say today and tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year and make a profit. He's saying the exact same thing here with come now, you rich. Basically what that means, come now is, hey, listen up. Hey, this is important. I Listen up to this. And what he's saying is the difference between James 4, 13 through 17 and this one is that James is not giving any sort of redemptive option on this because we are we are to see in this that that what the rich are doing and the gains of how they're gaining their wealth and how they're hoarding their wealth has no means that they're truly be a follower of Christ. What he's saying is James is commanding, he's commanding the rich to weep and howl. He's saying, come on, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Because the miseries that are about to come upon them are not temporal, but they're eternal. And there's no amount of wealth that they can gather up that can safeguard them against this. He's saying like in verse 5 where it's saying you live, you've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. That they are living in that and will be replaced. That will be replaced by the weeping and gnashing of teeth. This howling that he's talking about. He's saying you need to listen up on this. This is important. That people that are just hoarding wealth, people that are gaining richly means by, by worldly standards... That, that, that might be great in the here and now, but in the end, it'll lead to eternal condemnation, eternal separation from God. That yes, it might be great now, but later, it'll be a lot worse 
for all of eternity. And, and what we are to understand as believers, here's our command. Instead of envying those who, quote unquote, have it all, we're to mourn for them. Instead of looking at these people that seem to have it all, the nice house, the nice car, all the followers, the nice clothes, all those things. Instead of looking at those, wow, that is what I attained to. We, we are to mourn for people like that, that think that is what all this world is about. To think that that is what truly satisfies. We are to mourn for people like that. It should break our hearts for people placing all of their stock in this world. And then as our hearts break for these people, it should compel us to pray for them and their salvation. That they'll find their satisfaction truly in Christ. Because here's the thing, no amount of earthly gain, no earthly pursuit we have will ever truly satisfy our soul. In fact, a great example of this is uh, is a man that is very polarizing in the form of Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, where Love him or hate him, by worldly standards, he has it all. I mean, think about it. Six Super Bowls. He has a supermodel for a wife. He has millions upon millions of dollars in sponsorships. I mean, by worldly standards, he has it all. But listen to this quote he said in an interview back in 2005. There's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? And that was back when he had three Super Bowls. He had three Super Bowls. He was still married and everything else. And now here he is. About 15 years later, three more Super Bowls, arguably the greatest quarterback of all time, everything like that. He can have everything by the worldly standards, but he just says, it seems like there's more. There's more to it. The reason there's more is because nothing in this world can truly satisfy the deepest longings and desires of our heart. It is only by placing our trust fully in Christ, by having a heart abandoned, pursuing Christ that we will have the deepest longings, desires of our hearts satisfied. Let me ask you this. What are you placing your stock in? Where do your priorities lie? Are they in this world or the world to come? Are they placing it stock in this life or in the life of Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is enough? Even when it seems like everything else might not be enough regardless of what that could be. It could be not having the newest phone. It could be not having the latest clothes. It could be not having the quote-unquote coolest of friends or the amount of friends or the amount of followers on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter, whatever the case would be. Is Jesus enough? Because in the end, we will see that earthly pursuits and the gains here pale in comparison to heavenly pursuits and the rewards that we will earn there. Because earthly pursuits leads to eternal condemnation. But something else we got to understand is greater earthly gain now leads to greater judgment faced later. Greater earthly gain now leads to greater judgment faced later. So James says in verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. And then in verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. And so that seems kind of interesting, okay? Uh, what's to do with riches and garments and gold and silver? 
Basically, what James is saying in this is he's addressing all three of the biggest forms of wealth at that time in the ancient world. So at that time, riches in this could be like crops, like this land, like this, this livestock, this land, crops. That was a very important thing. He's saying that is rotted away. He's saying garments, basically nice clothes and then gold and silver, those precious metals. And then he says in the end, it says, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up your treasures in the last days. And so basically what that means by the last days is ever since Pentecost, so Pentecost, big event where the Holy Spirit came down, everybody has the fire above their heads, they're speaking in different languages, things like that. Ever since then, we have entered what's called the last days. Basically meaning Jesus could return at any point to come judge the world. And so that's why it seems weird where it says, okay, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, even though they have all these things at the time. Like, they physically have crops, they physically have clothes, and they physically have silver and gold. So I'd say they have rotted and they have corroded and things like that. It's for two reasons. The first one is that in a spiritual sense, they're already worthless or useless because they're just accumulating earthly wealth at the exclusion of heavenly wealth. So at this point, they're just saying, well, this is all that life has, so I'm just going to gather up all I can, and that's going to be it. The other one is that in a physical sense, the reason they're worthless is because they're hoarding all this wealth only to be used for themselves rather than people around them that are in need. What they're saying is this doesn't matter to the rich person because they believe this is all that there is to life. Or maybe they just simply don't care about the life to come. I mean, there was that very, very uh, ignorant phrase a few years ago, YOLO, you only live once. And so led to people doing some very ignorant things or other stuff, but they thought this is all that life is. And so what he's saying is, look, if all you're gaining is all these things and hoarding it all for yourself, and you're not even using it for anybody else, not only spiritually they're worthless, but physically they're worthless. Because again, they're gathering all this wealth for themselves, and they're not using it for anybody else. In fact, it says in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, it says, lay up your treasures in heaven. Where, where moths can't eat it, where this silver and gold can't be corroded, where the riches can't be rotted. That's where we're to lay up our treasures in heaven. Here's, here's the thing. He says, these riches you've gathered, these garments you've gathered, the silver and gold that have corroded, it says their corrosion will be evidence against you. So the gathering of these riches will be evidence against them on the final judgment. And it says this hoarding of wealth will end in two promises. One... It will say, it'll be, it will be evidence against you. And two, it will eat your flesh like fire, which is pretty awful imagery. But, but it shows how serious God takes us and how we are to take our wealth and resources that God has given us. This imagery of corrosion of their wealth becomes evidence against them because the reason why that's ironic that this gold and silver becomes corroded because normally silver and gold don't corrode or rust or things like that. The reason why that's ironic is because typically at this time, rich people would use the court systems in their favor. Basically, they were able to manipulate court systems. They're able to bribe the court systems with silver and gold to be able to get kind of favors in their way, rulings in their way. But the thing is, this is opposite of the judgment of God because there is no bribing God. The only evidence that matters in the end is if we repented of our sins believed in his son, and have advanced his kingdom. We could gather up all the wealth in the world. 
We can do all that, but in the end, it's going to be about, did we repent of our sins, believe on Jesus, and try to make his name famous? In the end, it's not going to be like, well, I had this many followers. I had this designer clothes. I had this latest phone. I had all these accolades. Not saying those are bad. But ultimately, if that's what we're placing our stock in, then in the end, we will see it pales in comparison. Instead, we are to be using those to advance his kingdom. Because in the end, the only thing that matters, the only evidence that will help us is if we repented of our sins, believed in his son, and are advancing his kingdom. So let me ask you this. Have you truly repented of your sins and believed in Christ? Because like I said, that is the only thing that will matter in the end. And if you have not yet, you can always do that tonight. You don't have to go another day without doing so. Like I said, his love remains. His love never fails never gives up, and it never runs out on us. It can meet us wherever we are at, regardless of how the situation is. So here's the thing. If we are to, if we are to not hoard our wealth, not only for ourselves and just use it for ourselves, here's the command we are to follow. We are to share our lives and resources for the advancement of God's kingdom. We are to share our lives and resources for the advancement of God's kingdom. Because another reason this was so condemning towards the rich is they were hoarding all of these clothes. The reason is the clothes are moth-eaten is because they gathered up so many clothes that they were useless. They were eaten by moths. They could have been given out to poor people or things like that to help them at this time. But instead, they didn't use that towards it. So for us, if we're to see that that is how God is going to condemn the rich or people that pursue riches in that way and gather it that way, then let's look at this. As believers, we should share our lives and the resources that he's given us for the advancement of God's kingdom. And you know what? If God has blessed me with this, then I want to turn around and bless other people with it to ultimately point them to Jesus as what they need in the end. This means that if we're going to use our lives and resources to advance God's kingdom, that means we have to overthrow our personal kingdom. That means we cannot be advancing our desires and what we want, but ultimately God wants. We are truly living out that part in the Lord's Prayer where it says, Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the only way we can have his kingdom come is our personal kingdom must be overthrown. The only way his will can be done is if our will is in submission to his. We will see in the end that that sacrifice is totally worth it. So think about this. How are you using your life? How are you using your money? How are you using your time, your abilities, your talents? Are they being used to make Christ known and his kingdom advanced? Or are they being used to make ourselves known more and advance our kingdom? Are they being used for Christ to gain more followers or just ourselves to gain more followers? Because in the end, the more we advance our kingdom, the harsher judgment we will face. But the more we advance Christ's kingdom, the more rewards we shall inherit. Because again, greater, greater wealth gain now will lead to greater judgment then. But lastly, what we are to understand is this, is that in the end, God is the ultimate avenger and will right every wrong. God is the ultimate avenger and will right every wrong. Because let's face it, there's times we face a lot of difficulties in this life. We face struggles. We face things where it says, this just, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. 
whether it be situations we face or we see other people facing. We say this can't be how it is. And ultimately, in the end, God will be the one to avenge everything. We'll be able to right every wrong. Because if we try to take the responsibility in ourselves to gain vengeance, it'll be after our own desires rather than God who is perfect and pure and can truly give true, just vengeance and right every wrong. So like it says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, as it says in verse 4. So here's a little bit more historical background of the importance of that. Okay, so before this time, before about 70 AD, when this is being written, more land was being bought and gathered up by this small group of rich landowners. And so what happened is because these rich landowners are buying all of this land and accumulating all of it, what it caused is it caused these farmers in these lands to have to assimilate into these big lands that the rich people are buying. And because they have to assimilate into these big lands that these rich people are buying, it's forcing these farmers to sell themselves for hire to these rich landowners to work these lands. So landowners have already bought their land. Now they're being forced to work for these landowners. Then on top of that, these landowners would hire these farmers, would work them to work the fields, these large lands, and then withhold their wages for their work. So this withholding would actually jeopardize their very lives because this would be that daily bread, if you will, to provide for their families. And it was against the law of what it said in Deuteronomy. That was against the law to withhold someone's wages. That was basically equivalent of murdering someone at the time because they couldn't provide for their family or feed them. And so James plays on that, speaking to these rich people, basically attacking these rich landowners and saying, look, hey, behold, those wages of the laborers you hold back, those people that are mowing your fields and you're holding back that you got by fraud are crying out against you. So the very money that these landowners are holding back from these, from these farmers is even more evidence, like it says in verse 3, against them. It's such powerful imagery because it says the very wages are crying out against the rich people. This imagery is very reminiscent of Cain. When Cain killed Abel and God says, I can hear Abel's blood crying out from the ground. It's the same way in this where, God, where James is saying, look, those very wages are crying out to God and can be heard for God. But here's the more important thing and the incredible thing. It says, which you kept our father crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So not only does the wages cry out, but it's the cries of the harvesters too. But notice this, it's the cries of the harvesters that are heard by the Lord. These very laborers that are, that are being abused and used and held back from their wages. It is those cries that are being heard by God. And so here's the encouragement in this is God hears your cries and has not left you. So think about this, regardless, no matter how bad your situation, no matter how alone you might feel, no matter how hopeless it seems in certain situations, God hears your cries and has not left you. No matter how bad the situation is, no matter how awful things seem, no matter how unjust it seems, God hears you, God sees you, and God has not left you alone. God is right there with you in the midst of all of it. In fact, in the reading this week in the Bible in 90 days, one of the Psalms was Psalm 103. And in Psalm 103, verse 6, it says this, God works 
all righteousness and justice for the oppressed. Because that is because God is the ultimate judge. But right now in this world, it seems to be the rich and unbelievers want to play judge. They want to say what is right and what is wrong. That they will celebrate what is wicked and they will denounce what is good. And that can put us in difficult situations. That can put us in times where we feel oppressed and hurt. And so I tell you, if you are facing trials, if you are facing difficulties, no matter how dire it is, cry out to God because he hears you. You're not alone and he sees you where you're at. His love will meet you there. Because like I said, God is the ultimate judge. But right now it seems like the rich and unbelievers, they want to play God. That's why it is seen in verse 6 when James says, The rich unbeliever has condemned and murdered the righteous person. Basically what condemned mean in this time, it's, it's they've corrupted the legal processes available to them in order to gain more wealth and more land. So that goes back to the imagery of them being able to buy more land and being able to gather up where these farmers are at and gather all that land from them and gather more wealth and more land. And the whole murder part is, like I said earlier, they're withholding these wages from the laborers, which would be equivalent to murder. The rich person feels like because of their status, because of all the stuff that they own, because of that in society, they feel like they can take the role of judge over God. If the unbelievers... But here's the thing. It's the unbelievers condemning the innocent where it's the, un, where it's the unbeliever who's the one that's guilty. And the righteous person's the one that's innocent. Why? Because in the end, we're the ones that have placed our lives in Christ, that were washed pure and clean by the blood of Christ. And in the end, we will stand and that's what God will see as his righteousness on us. But right now, it's the rich person, the unbelieving person that wants to be able to play judge in this time because they think this world is all that there is. The reason the righteous person, it says, he does not resist you. The righteous person doesn't resist that. The reason the righteous person doesn't resist the unbeliever is because maybe they're either not in the position to be able to do that or they're unable to do that. Either way, if we don't resist this, the, re- the truth of this verse still remains. We are to not take vengeance on unbelievers. Because by doing so, we are also taking the role of God. We're trying to take this injustice and trying to take it in our hands and we're saying, we're going we're gonna to return that back. But instead, here's a command we are to do. We are to rest in God's promises. We are to rest in God's promises. Knowing that in the end, he will be the one who seeks vengeance and it will be holy and just. In the end, God will be the one to right every wrong. We can rest in his promises because, again, he is, as it says in verse 4, the Lord of hosts. We can rest in his promises knowing that he will right every wrong. We can rest in his promises knowing that in the here and now he will meet us where we are at. We can rest in his promises knowing that, okay, by earthly standards we might not gain much, but spiritually we can gain a whole lot. And that we can live our lives wholly sold out to God. Knowing that not only he will bless us with things in this life, might not be the way we see it, but in the end as well, he will bless us with so much more in heaven. It, it makes me think of, of an elevation song called, Oh, Come to the Altar. 
And at the very end, it says, bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Knowing that, yes, we bear our cross right now. And it can be difficult some days. But we know that Jesus is worth more. That Jesus is enough. That Jesus is better.